following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ has taught His disciples that there's a right way and a wrong way to be in the world and specifically to be in the kingdom of heaven. There's a right way and a wrong way to keep the law of God. There's a right way and a wrong way to give alms to the poor. There's a right way and a wrong way to pray. There's a right way and a wrong way to fast. There's a right way and a wrong way to order your commitments your affections, and your life goals, even. He's handled each of these subjects. And in each of these teachings that we've been considering week in and week out as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is pronouncing judgment. Against whom? Against the hypocritical Pharisees who were living a lie, a lie of superficial, surface-deep religion in order to impress those around them, to gain social standing for themselves, to advance their own kingdom rather than the kingdom of heaven. The primary problem with these Pharisees and with their hypocrisy as Christ presents it to us is this this disconnect between their actions and their heart commitments. He doesn't say it's wrong to give to the poor or to pray or to fast. In fact, he expects his disciples to do these things. What's wrong is that the Pharisees were doing them, and there was this great disconnect. They weren't doing it because they wanted to serve God, but they were doing it to serve themselves. And that's their hypocrisy. They seemed to serve God when they were simply serving themselves. However, another problem that they... uh, of the Pharisees and of their whole teaching is that they demanded something from those around them which they did not demand of themselves. But here at the beginning of chapter 7, we have our Lord, we have Jesus Christ seeming to forbid his disciples from doing something that he's been doing up to this point that he will continue to do throughout Matthew's gospel and that is judging others. Even though he's been sitting over the, or judging, you know, sitting over in judgment the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, uh, for all of his public ministry up to this point, he tells his disciples, do not judge. So what do we make of this? Sure, I look out at whom I'm addressing this evening. I know each of you know that Jesus Christ is pure. He's holy. He's undefiled. There's no double-mindedness in him. He's not a sinner like the rest of us. And so surely, surely there's, there's some way to reconcile this judgment, this, this commandment, do not judge, with the fact that Jesus, in fact, very clearly judges those around him. Surely he... Our Lord is no hypocrite. So, how does uh, this opening verse of chapter 7, in fact, these opening verses of chapter 7, fit in with the rest of Christ's teaching? How should we understand this clear prohibition on judgment? Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Well, what I intend to show you from our text this evening, as I seek to, to make this clear is that Christians 
those who follow Christ, have a clear responsibility to judge, but to judge rightly for their own and their neighbor's good to the glory of God. Christians have a responsibility to judge rightly for their own and their neighbor's good to the glory of God. You know, we live in a time when Matthew 7 verse 1 gets trotted out uh, to intimidate Christians into soft-pedaling God's clear condemnation of evil and sin, of soft-pedaling God's unchanging commitment to heavenly holiness in His people and in His kingdom and in His world that He's created. Have you ever had that happen where someone says, well, who are you to judge? Didn't Jesus say, don't judge lest ye be judged? Someone said that to me before. Perhaps you've had the same kind of conversation. And I'm sure that you, like me, actually need this reminder, this reminder from Christ, that we have a solemn responsibility and a God-given duty to judge, but we must do so rightly. For the consequences of doing so rashly are dire indeed. So we're going to unpack this serious command in three parts. The command to judge rightly in verse 1. The reason to judge rightly in verses 2 through 4. And then the result of judging rightly in verse 5. The command, the reason, and the result of judging rightly. In the first place, the command to judge rightly. Look at verse 1 with me. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And so you might think, Pastor Groff, how is this a command to judge? It's clearly a command not to judge. Well, much like the Ten Commandments, which we rehearsed one this evening in our confession of faith, there's always a a positive duty established in a prohibition, just as there are certain things prohibited Um, along with a positive duty. So Christ here is telling us how not to judge, but also we can infer from that and the broader witness of Scripture how to judge in light of his prohibition against judging in a certain way. He tells us in the first half of verse 1, do not judge. And what he's specifically prohibiting here is what I've already mentioned, rash or unlawful, unauthorized, unjustified judgment. And that involves three things. Uh, Rash judgment is judgment that's born out of a malicious nosiness, a kind of fault-finding, which is very common. We're all born with it. The desire to to get into somebody else's business and to pick them apart, to, to find out their weaknesses, the chink in their armor, so to speak. And that's really a form of misanthropy, of man-hating. So what he's forbidding here is a hateful heart toward others. The second uh, thing that's involved here in rash judgment is really false and uncharitable judgment of others. So it's not just the heart of someone who hates those around them and seeks to tear them down, but also uh, someone who rushes in judgment to the worst possible interpretation of someone else's actions. To put it another way... He's prohibiting believing the worst about others. And then thirdly, it's this motive. This motive. You got a bad heart, you got a bad manner, but you also got a bad motive in rash judgment. It's a motive of defamation of character rather than reformation of character. What motivates someone to be rash in their judgments of others? They want to tear them down. They don't want to build them up. They don't want to help them. They want to hurt them. 
defamation rather than reformation. You all are very familiar with uh, kind of the rash judger par excellence in Scripture. We've been talking about him for weeks now, weeks and weeks, even months in our morning services. Let me read Job chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. You see in this one example... This dark and evil example of Satan attacking Job. You have an attack on Job's character, calling into question Job's integrity. And then throughout uh, the book of Job, what do we have? Job's surrounded with these three wise friends of his who are continually attacking him, reading the worst into every good thing he ever did, questioning his motives. This, my friend, is the best picture of rash judgment I can lay before you. Such wicked and rash judgment, it cannot stand with Christian love. You see, Christian love does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Do you ever catch yourself, much like Satan models for us and Job's friends fall into, rushing to judgment against someone or against some community or even ministry effort that you hear about and you immediately question the motives? You hear about some good thing someone did and you immediately think, your knee-jerk reaction is, oh, well, he just did it to make himself look good. Oh, he just did it for this or the other reason. Or put another way, have you ever caught yourself wanting to search out and to find the secret sins and faults of others? Are you a nosy person by nature, temperament, or disposition? I see some hands raised there. (laughs) But in all seriousness, is this a Christian impulse? It truly does not belong to any disciple of Christ. That's Jesus' point here. In fact, to up the heat a bit, This impulse of seeking for somebody else's faults, of believing the worst about even the good that others do or that you hear about, it's a satanic impulse. Insofar as you follow that pattern in your life, you're following a model set for us, not by God in heaven, but by Satan. So watch watch yourself and that critical spirit. Let it be established then that we are not to rush into judgment against our neighbors, our friends, our brothers, our sisters, or our fellow church members. But is judgment ever warranted? And that's really the crux of the issue here. Should we ever judge then? As we interpret Christ's command not to judge in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. We must do so with the clarity of scriptural witness, which teaches us that Christians have a responsibility to judge, but to judge rightly for their own and their neighbor's 
good to the glory of God. And there are four kinds of judgment now. Consider how to judge. And we'll go through this quickly. Four kinds of judgment that are modeled for us in Scripture. Two of them are public. Two of them are private. And this is what judging rightly can look like. In the first public instance, you have the civil magistrate's responsibility to judge. We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 1 in which uh, the visible church was also a body politic, and Moses was uh, instructed by God to appoint elders to judge uh, between man and man in disputes. Certainly later on we see King Solomon judging between uh, the two women arguing about uh, the, the child, and he judges wisely. But on this side of the cross, we don't live in a theocracy. We live in a democracy. We live in a state in which the people are said to be sovereign. Uh, what is our responsibility then to civil magistrates or if we find ourselves serving as civil magistrates? Well, we are to judge. Romans 13 puts it this way. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it, that is the governing authority, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I mean, surely the civil magistrate needs to judge between good and evil. Now, the second public instance of judging rightly is ecclesiastical in the church. Hebrews 11.7 says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. See, whenever we gather together on the Lord's day, morning and evening, we are publicly judging, making a judgment together as to how it is we should be spending our time, where it is salvation is to be found. Whenever a minister of the gospel stands and reads God's word or preaches, he is pronouncing God's judgment about what is right and good and true and beautiful and what is wrong and bad and false and ugly in this world and about this world. And certainly, elders of the church are tasked with rendering judgments when uh, allegations are made against members in their church, allegations of sin. These are very serious and public matters. And we are called to judge rightly in these instances, not rashly. But there are some private uh, contexts as well. The first one's very well known, and that's private admonition. You notice a brother or a sister slipping up, sinning in some way, and what are we told to do in Matthew 18? In this same gospel, Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And Paul writes in Galatians 6, expanding on this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a man in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And so we are called to judge rightly in public and in private. But there's one more private instance, which is a bit controversial here, and that's the instance of justified disapproval of evil, even in private. And we see Christ model this for us throughout Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 16, 6, what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What does Jesus do when he says, watch out and beware? He's judging. 
He's judging the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this does not give us a warrant to run willy-nilly around heresy hunting and saying, watch out for him, watch out for her, watch out for this, watch out for that at every opportunity. But it does give us an approved example of being very careful in judging rightly for the good of our neighbor and for the good of his soul. And there's a certain procedure that we must follow that Scripture gives us in terms of coming to these right judgments, whatever the context, public, private, civil, ecclesiastical, admonition, or disapproval, whatever the case may be. First, God shows us by his own deeds and actions in Genesis that we must sufficiently and thoroughly search out a cause. Have you ever thought about how wonderful this is? In Genesis 11, when they're building the Tower of Babel, what does it say God does? It doesn't say God hears about it or God knows about it. It says God came down to see what they were doing. And only after coming down and seeing what they were doing did he arrive at a judgment and then pronounce uh, a curse and confusing the tongues of the nations. And then later on in Genesis 18, where do we find uh, the, the, the pre-incarnate uh, appearance of the Lord but in searching out another matter of sin as he goes to investigate what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? You see, God gives us this example that we must be careful in searching out, particularly and thoroughly, um, the, the facts that we need in order to come to a righteous judgment. Rash judgment, on the other hand, is often woefully ignorant of the facts. We hear a rumor, we hear some gossip through the, through the, through the grapevine, and you know, our flesh immediately wants to rush to some rash judgment that condemns the person we're hearing about. But no, don't let that be you. Be very careful to arrive at any judgment before you've considered all the facts that are available to us. Our impatience and our love of controversy, those two uh, sins of our nature, they militate against us. We really want to be rushed in our judgment and rash, but we must resist that. In the second place, after searching out a matter, you need to think about your place and the responsibility that God has given you to render judgment in some way, either publicly or privately, but always under the control of the love of Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels us. We're not being compelled by our desire to judge for the sake of judging, but we should be compelled by love for the good of our neighbor to the glory of God. And then and only then, after we've checked our motives, is it appropriate then to come to judgment. And then when we do render judgment, even if it's harsh, and I'll give you some examples, we must always render such judgment toward a good end. What were those two ends? Rash judgment, defamation, destruction of someone's character, but a good end, the reformation of someone's character either those around us or even the person that we're hearing about or noticing some weakness. Whatever society we're in, we're seeking to build up, not to tear down. Let me give you five examples of this very quickly. John the Baptist judged the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 3, 7 very publicly as what? A brood of vipers. Did he do that to be mean? It's a pretty mean thing to say, right? I mean, it's pretty harsh. But he didn't call the Pharisees, the Sadducees, a brood of vipers to be mean because he relished judging them or he hated them. No, he did it to warn them from their sin and to warn others 
from their superficiality and their hypocrisy for the good of his society. Second place, Jesus himself, uh, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, he's, uh, he's overlooking Jerusalem. And what does he describe Jerusalem as? But as a murderous, rebellious, and idolatrous city within the earshot of his disciples. Now, did he do that because he hated Jerusalem? No. He did that in connection to saying he loved Jerusalem and wished to shelter them and to deliver them and these people. And yet, he's lamenting how they resisted the prophets before him, and he knew what they were about to do to him. Jesus also in Luke 13, verse 32, judged King Herod to be, quote, that fox. Uh, There was a time not too long ago in the life of the PCA when there was a resolution before our General Assembly to publish a public rebuke of a politician, a leader in our country who got caught in a gross and very public scandal involving lying and sexual immorality. And there was fierce debate on the floor of the assembly whether or not we should do this. Someone got up and said, it will hurt our gospel witness to do this. People who voted for him will be really turned off and they'll think we're all a bunch of the other party. And then a, a venerable statesman in the PCA, I think it was D. James Kennedy, got up and all he did was read that verse about Herod being that fox. And he sat down. I think that's very appropriate, this public disapproval. It's a harsh judgment, but it is true for the building up of the society of which we're a part. In the fourth place, Paul judged the Galatians to be foolish in being deceived or bewitched by the legalists and Judaizers in Galatians 3 verse 1. And why did he do that? Why did he say, you foolish Galatians, even as he's writing to them? He didn't do it to endear himself to them. But he also didn't do it to tear them down. He did it to ring that alarm bell like Dr. Piper rings the Sunday school bell. To warn them and to call them to repentance for their good. And God himself, through Isaiah the prophet, condemned the leaders of Israel as rulers of Sodom and people of Gomorrah. That is deserving the harshest judgment of God in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. So we've established what's prohibited here in verse 1. Also, what's commanded by Scripture And verse 1, what we can infer from that through the lens of Scripture's testimony. And in the second half of the verse, he gives this warning against those who would judge rashly, so that you will not be judged. In verses 2 through 4, Jesus is going to give sufficient reasons for why we are not to judge rashly. But first, he includes this immediate warning in the second half of verse 1. What is it that Christ is warning us against? Is he warning against God's righteous judgment against our rash judgment? I don't think so. In fact, he's using the same language. He doesn't change anything here. What he's warning against is rash judgment, which you'll be inviting upon yourself if you engage in rash judgment. He's warning you very wisely. If you judge rashly, you shall be judged rashly by those around you. That's what you can expect. And so he, uh, he, he gives this warning to his disciples of the inevitable repercussion of being rash and censorious, is the language, or uncharitable in their judgment of men. They're going to receive similar treatment from others. There's no getting around this danger. And in verses 2 through 4, Jesus opens this up in much greater detail for us as he gives us two reasons 
to judge rightly in verses 2 through 4. It gives us the reasons to judge rightly. In the first place, you cannot stand to be judged by other men. In verse 2, look at it with me. He says, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So he gives a couple of metaphors here of rules and standards of measure. And in this verse, he's uh, referring to this dynamic from the second half of verse 1. If you're rash, if you're malicious, if you're hateful in your judgment, God decrees this, that you will suffer the malice of your fellow men. This doesn't mean that God himself is the immediate cause or author of other men's sinful, rash judgments of you. No, their sin is their own. But in God's mysterious providence, which we cannot understand how this works out, he himself decrees their rash judgment to accomplish his purpose of rendering a just judgment upon the unrepentant sinner or to chastise, to chasten, and to reform his children whom he loves. So these two metaphors uh, in verse 2 of judging and, and standard of measure, they're very appropriate. You see, our God is a just God. His judgments and his reproofs, they do indeed fit the crime. Even in this life, there's nothing cruel or unusual about this at all. It is just recompense. But does that mean that everybody who has something nasty said about them, does that mean that they've said something nasty about someone else before? Does that sound right? No. That's what Job's friends thought. That because Job was suffering, he must have committed some atrocious act of sin. And they were dead wrong. In fact, Jesus indicated in the Beatitudes in chapter 5 that those who follow him will suffer slander and persecution, that is rash judgment, for his sake, for no fault of their own. For brothers and sisters, here's the point. Let us never give anyone any reason to slander us or to blaspheme Christ. Let us not be caught judging others rashly lest we invite such rash judgment upon ourselves. So that's the first reason. You can't stand to be judged by men. So don't you judge men rashly. The second reason in verses 3 and 4 is really quite simple with this uh, famous and vivid picture of the log in the judgmental person's eye. You with greater faults than others should not be judging others until you address the faults that you have. Uh, look at the metaphor with me. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. Here we have two characters, each with a problem. You got you with a big old log or beam stuck in your eye, a ridiculous picture. And then you have your brother who has a little speck or splinter in his eye. Both of these are problems, mind you. I had a little splinter in my palm earlier today. And I was thinking about this illustration this week. I thought it was very apropos. I got a splinter today. And that was super annoying. You can even see it's still a little red and irritated even after I took the splinter out. Now imagine if I had one in my eye, that tender uh, organ of sight that God has blessed us with. Or if you have a big beam in your eye, I mean, how would that affect your everyday life? So Christ is going right to a very urgent medical issue here boys and girls, as he gives us this metaphor. The main character, though, that is you in this metaphor or parable, 
you have a much bigger problem than your brother. And what's the main character trying to do? In the midst of his trouble, what is he trying to do? He's trying to address the other person's trouble. You know, I immediately thought of a tendency I had when I was a little kid. I, whenever I was over at a friend's house, I loved you know, doing dishes for my friends or helping my friend clean his room or helping my friend tidy up his playroom or whatever or even weed his garden outside, you know, whatever I could do. It's like, oh, wow, you, you, got, you got a lot of things you need to address. And then I'd go home. And our sink would be full of dishes, and I wouldn't touch a single one. My room would have clothes all over the floor. My bed would be unmade, and I wouldn't even think to deal with it. And there would be weeds all in the garden around my house. And you know what I did? It wasn't weeding when I got home. But I loved fixing other people's problems. But, oh, if they just knew what it was like back in my house, they wouldn't want me helping out. Because, obviously, I have no idea what I'm talking about or what I'm doing. Can you relate to that kind of uh, that kind of impulse to fix other people's problems when you've got plenty of problems of your own. And that's the point of the metaphor. If you're someone who finds fault in someone else and likes to point it out and try to fix it, then you've got a bigger problem that needs to be addressed first. It's like the armchair quarterback who yells, that player is so lazy during a football game while he himself is sitting in, in his lazy boy chair eating Cheetos or something. Uh, who's the lazy one in the picture? But the spiritual reality of this metaphor is such. The man with the speck in his eye, and we shouldn't lose sight of this, may be experiencing some kind of impaired vision. He may actually need some help. He cannot see as well as he could if that little speck were removed. But what about the man with the log in his eye? He can't see at all. His eye is not well. It's broken. It's not functioning at all. It is darkened. And what do we know from darkened eyes or about darkened eyes from Matthew 6, 23? Look at your text with me just to take, take a look back. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus is pointing out here now at the beginning of Matthew 7 with an echo of what he just said to his disciples in 6. He's pointing out this massive spiritual problem with the man carrying a log in his eye. The eye stands for this inner spiritual condition of this man, of you. And it is not well, he says. The man's conscience is asleep at the wheel. And he's headed for a wreck if he hasn't already hit it. Christ is now ringing the alarm bells. He's saying, wake up, wake up. Consider the log in your own eye. See, the man with a sleepy conscience, with the log that he's unwilling to address, with the darkened understanding, with the bad eye, he can't perceive his own sin at all. He can't examine himself. How then is he supposed to address the sins he thinks he detects in others? My friends, this is us he's talking about. By nature, each of us Every one of us from our mother's wombs are spiritually proud, self-serving, and blind guides. We want to have positions of influence over others, but we can't even control ourselves. Without God's gift of a new heart, of a new mind, of a new enlightened spiritual condition, we are caught in this deadly spiral 
of darkness, confusion, self uh, deception, and foolishness. The end result of all this? Nothing short of eternal pain, anguish, darkness, and torment in separation from the eternal blessings that are stored up in Christ alone. The, the last stop for someone with a log in his eye like this is hell. Hell itself. You see the urgency of the matter. So what hope do we have? Well, our hope is in Christ. And he doesn't leave this subject without first offering the remedy for judgmental hypocrites like you and like me. Where he gives this direction in verse 5 and then the result of judging rightly. Look at verse 5 with me. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice how there's two parts here to verse 5. You have a remedy that Christ proposes, but then the result. The remedy, Christ here repeats his command from verse 1, but now with a clear purpose. He says, uh, uh, kind of rephrasing it, rather than do not judge, he's saying take the log out of your own eye. Basically, don't worry about someone else's problem. Stop and deal with your own problem first. But now you have this clear purpose in the second half of verse 5. What does this new setting, this new context tell us? Well, in the first place, my friends, there is hope for change. As long as you're living, as long as there's breath in their lungs, there is hope to be found in Christ Jesus and in God. Whereas in verse 1, this command was kind of tied up to a threat. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. That rash judging of others invites rash judgment from others. Here in verse 5, now Jesus ties it to a promise of usefulness and fruitfulness in wise service to others. See, even malicious judgmentalism here, it's the corruption of something that I think is, is good. The, the human desire to be in relationship with others, to have some sort of correspondence, some sort of meaningful interaction with those around you. But malicious judgmentalism tears down. It's destructive. It becomes a one-way street of evil and injury radiating out from yourself into the lives of those around you. But the opposite kind of interaction now that Jesus is talking about and setting before his disciples is constructive, good, and promoting of healing and reformation. What Christ says is essentially the same as his first words of proclamation in Matthew 4, 17, where he says there, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where is the hope? It's in Christ's words of repent. Repent. He hears, or he calls his hearers to repent of their malicious judgmentalism in Matthew 7, verse 5, and to seek for wisdom from heaven above, wisdom and knowledge and life that is found in him and in him alone and which bears fruit in helping Others. What must we do to be saved from the power of our sin? Jesus tells us, you must believe this one who is teaching you. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God has sent, who lived and died as a man to save you, and who conquered death in his resurrection and now stands in heaven pleading on your behalf for your salvation before the Father's throne. 
You must believe in him when he tells you that you are a sinner, even when he calls you a hypocrite. Do you believe that? Lord, you are right. I am a hypocrite by my nature. On my own, I need a new life. Grant me this repentance from sin. Here, that's signified by the removal of a log from your own eye, of this malicious judgmentalism, ripping it out of your spirit and your heart, as it were. My friend, repent and believe the gospel of this Jesus, our Christ and our Lord. And there's hope. What is the result then of this remedy's application to us? It is a glorious result. Consider what he says to those he just called hypocrite. Then you will see clearly. That is your eye, your heart, your spirit will be good. In order to do what? To take the speck out of your brother's eyes. You see, the result of this spiritual work in our lives by Christ is that we will be granted wisdom according to godliness. Heavenly wisdom that makes us useful in well-doing. It is only he who can see and address his own sin in humility before his maker that can then be any good to anyone else. Remember that this speck does need to come out of that brother's eye. As I have said earlier, the other character in the metaphor or the parable, he has a problem. He's got a speck in his eye. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be flushed out. And Christ is saying, you can help him, but first you must repent. You need to tear the log out of your eye. You can't perform the operation with anything less than 2020 spiritual vision. So we need to get that addressed. And with that log of malice removed, you will then be capable of doing your brother some good, of coming alongside of him to offer brotherly correction for the good of the life of your neighbors to the glory of God. But this brotherly correction, Jesus is making very clear to us, is necessary It's good. It is needed. Not only does it require Christian wisdom in order to address, but it also requires wisdom to know when to address it, in what circumstances to address it. Should this be a public thing? Is this something I bring to the session to address? Is this something I alert the civil authorities to? Or is this something that doesn't rise to that level? But I ought to go to him one-on-one or maybe with another person to to admonish privately. You need to consider as well the manner of the offense. Now, is this speck in my brother's eyes, this problem he has, is it because of his frailty, because he was tired, he was careless? Or is he in open rebellion against the Lord and against God's law? That's going to affect how you address it, isn't it? And how direct you are and how, how strong you are in addressing the speck in his eye. But it must follow self-consideration and examination. If you notice something in somebody else, uh, let's say you, you see someone, you think, you know, I think that, that brother has a problem with anger. Stop and consider, do I have a problem with anger? Why would that stick out to me? Why would I notice that? Is there something I need to be repenting of myself? Why am I ultra-sensitive to that particular issue in my brother's life? Is it because I am all too prone to fall into the same sin? You see how that that level of self-examination, it's heart-searching, but it's also very good. It will make you all the more effective in addressing problems of those around you. And then finally, when you do 
come to your brother and you address him. You don't do so with emotional appeal. You don't start with that. You don't try to manipulate him into changing. No, you come very straightforwardly, intelligently addressing his mind and his reason, giving doctrinal uh, bases and reasons and grounds for why it is you think he's in error or at fault and needs to be corrected. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.2, Reprove and rebuke with great patience and instruction. Brotherly correction is brotherly instruction. All instruction, if it's to be profitable, comes from God's Word. God's Word is God's Word, thus is theological by nature. In our world today, and each of us, I think, are tempted to do this, we don't want to do things the right way. We don't want to correct our brothers and our sisters and our friends and our neighbors in a way according to Scripture. We want to follow after the pattern of this world, what looks good, what feels good, what seems good to men and to those around us. And Jesus, as he's been doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is addressing that tendency of ours and calling us back to God's Word. Remember where we have our marching orders. For this is the Word not only of God's law, which condemns us in our sin, but it's also the words of life, which we rush to and hold fast to when we've been liberated from condemnation by the power of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, if you believe on this Christ as your Savior, do you believe him as well as your Lord to do the right thing, to follow the course of wisdom and heavenly fruitfulness? and faithfulness for his glory and the good of our neighbors. You see, as I've sought to show you from this text, perhaps a bit counterintuitively, Christians have a responsibility, don't they? A responsibility to judge rightly for their own and their neighbor's good, for the removal of logs and specks from sore and impaired eyes, all to the glory of God. Now, may God be glorified as we seek to put this into practice in our lives as we seek to judge rightly, temperately, carefully, even cautiously, but confidently resting on Christ, who is himself our good and righteous judge. Let us pray. O Lord, our God in heaven above, we bless your name. And we thank you that you have given us this, your word of instruction and guidance, that we would not be lost in this world and at a loss for how to deal with the many problems that surround us and, in fact, that bubble up from within us. Lord, we pray that you would grant us your spirit so that our minds and our wills and our tongues would be consecrated wholly and entirely to you. Lord, make us holy that we would judge rightly and righteously in the sight of Christ for the good of man and the glory of God. And now we offer to you a portion of that which we have received setting it apart and dedicating it to your service, even as you call out to us, letting us know that we are dedicated, O Lord, unto you. Lord, we consecrate ourselves, as it were, insofar as we are able to judge rightly, either in private or in public, whatever the case may be, for the glory of God, who sits in judgment over men. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.